Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 33 and 34 today in our uh, series, The Wilderness Wandering. I've entitled this message, The Good, The Bad, and The Blase. And everybody wants to go wah, 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 or however you want to do your good, the bad, and the ugly sound. But we're going to talk about that, not the movie Good, Bad, the Ugly, but we're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the blase. Have you ever been in this situation? I'm, I'm sure probably in today's society you have. A friend goes on vacation, they come back, and then you're going to ask your friend, how was your trip? As you talk to your friend, the friend decides that they're going to pull out their phone and start showing you every single picture that they took on this trip. And with today's modern storage devices on phones, it's not just one or five, you know, 10, 15 pictures. It's hundreds of pictures. You get pictures of the great events they were on. You get pictures of the really bad, dingy hotel they happen to stay in. You get pictures of the cute little gecko that they saw on the side of the wall that they thought they would take 15 pictures of because it was just so pretty and so cute and all the bugs and flowers and everything that they saw that was different. Gone are the days where you had a roll of film or a couple rolls of film and you had to find those perfect Kodak moments that you took for your slideshow. And so as your friend begins to swipe through the phone, they do the same thing that most people do anymore. They're going to linger on the highlights. They're going to point out the bad situations quickly. And they're just going to scroll through the blase pictures. They're just going to keep swiping left because they don't, they don't want to focus on that. Moses is going to do the same thing for us in Numbers chapter 33. Sure, he doesn't have a, a phone, but the only really storage device he has is a parchment. And so what he's going to do is he's going to keep it very concise. He's going to be conservative with his words. He's not going to go into great detail because in some situations he's already done that in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And in other situations, he's just going to keep the details very focused. Moses is going to take the time here to review the journey. And to remember how God led the children of Israel through the wilderness. He's going to take time to look back, to reflect on their journey of life, and the great God who led them and got them through the wilderness. And so that's that's sort of what is happening in Numbers 33. Most of us probably remember those moments, those moments in our life where they're etched upon our mind. It could be you remember where you were when the Challenger exploded, where you were when JFK was assassinated or you heard about that, or what you were doing when you heard about the trade towers and the planes flying into them on 9-11. You remember what you were doing or where you were at when you got a call from a loved one who said that they have cancer and they're dying. You remember where you were, what you were doing the first time that you heard you're expecting. There's, There's a child on the way or that you're going to be grandparents Or when you find out, because it's all the new rage, to find out if it's a a boy or a girl, which I find ironic that we're in all this cultural battle about gender, but everybody wants to do gender reveal parties. But everybody wants to find out. But you remember where you were, what you were doing. You remember the details for some of you about that moment when your husband or your fiancé got down on his knee and proposed. Those moments are etched upon our minds. We don't even have to go into great detail and write them down. We remember what had happened. And that's what's going on in Numbers 33 and 34. Moses is going to retell the journey. And a lot of these names, when a name is mentioned, it's etched upon the children of Israel's mind. When we think about the context here, remember where we're at. Context is always key and it helps us to understand What's happening? In chapter 25, the, the Exodus generation, the first generation is now completely gone. They're, they're completely dead, the ones who were not going to go into the promised land. So now it's time to go in. Numbers 26, Moses and Eliezer, they renumber the people. It's a military census preparing them for conquest. Chapters 27 through 30, God takes the time with Moses to uh, talk about the inheritance and talk about the laws of inheritance and what's going to happen when you get into the promised land. And so that, that's happening. And then you get to Numbers 31, and there's God's judgment upon the Midianites, the ones who acted against the people of God. And it was one of the things that God said to Moses, this is going to be the last thing you do before you pass and before Israel goes into the promised land. It's all moving toward that moment where they're going into the promised land. Chapter 32, two and a half of the tribes 
Gad, Reuben, and half-tribe of Manasseh say that they don't want to inherit in the promised land. They want to inherit outside the promised land. And so there's the whole uh, conversations that go on between Moses and them and the expectations that they have and the, the agreement that they come upon moving toward that. Chapter 34, after chapter 33, obviously, uh, chapter 34, the boundaries of this promised land are going to be established and how the land is going to be divided is going to be declared and all of that. And so right in the middle, we start with chapter 33. Everything is moving toward the promised land and that final culmination. And before the they, they get to that point where they start marching, Moses is going to take time to reflect. He's going to look back and recount the steps by which God led his people victoriously from bondage to freedom and eventually here to prosperity in the land. And so step by step, moment by moment, detail by detail, word by word, Moses just methodically moves Israel from Egypt to the promised land in chapter 33. It's a great retelling, a quick retelling of the, of the account that, that occurs here. Now, this list that is given here is designed to shape Israel's perspective, to remind them certain things concerning the wilderness and concerning God. Numbers 9, if you remember back, the first time they start moving, Numbers 9, verse number 18 says, As the Lord commanded, they departed. And as the Lord commanded, they encamped or they camped in. Now, that's important because you'll see that throughout this book that they, in, in this, that they departed from, like verse 17, from Kibroth HaTavah, and they pitched or they encamped in, the, in Hazaroth. And so there's that pattern that is established back in Numbers 9 that is carried out here that Moses is saying, every time we moved, it wasn't just a whim, it just, we were following what God had commanded us to do. We were picking up and we were settling down at the command of God. Not every encampment here in Numbers 33 is, is known to us today. That's important for us to know. We, we don't know all these locations, and that's, that's okay. However, many of the locations, scholars have a good idea of where they're at and what the general journey is, but truthfully, I'm not even going to give you a map in the notes. I don't even put a map up here trying to chart because we don't know all of them. If you, go on, if you want to go on and Google the idea of wilderness wandering or the wilderness journey and try and find a map, every one is going to be a little bit different because some of these names we just don't know. And that's okay. We don't have to know them because they never became final settled cities. They were places that Moses and the children of Israel remembered or they called it that or it was a, a city at that time that is no longer a city today. And so we don't know that. There's a lot of years that have passed between the wilderness and, and present day. But that doesn't uh, invalidate the Bible. That doesn't discount the inspiration of Scripture. It just means that some of these places we don't know. We don't, we don't know where they're at. The recounting of the journey is going to be broken into stages. Or as the King James says, if you look at 33 verses 1 and 2, and these are the journeys of the children of Israel, which went forth from the land of Egypt with their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Moses wrote their goings out, or the, the idea here is the word stages. Their goings out according to their journey by the commandment of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their goings out, or according to the stages that they, they set up. So from one, from one to the other. Verses 3 to 15 give you a, a general breakdown here initially. Verses 3 to 15 are going to, it's going, you're going to find 11 campsites. And it's from Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai. Now, if you remember all the way back a year ago when we started this, which I don't really remember, so you probably don't, and that's okay. The book breaks down into three basic sections, and Moses does that again here. You have from Egypt to Sinai through verse 15. Then verses 16 to 36, you're going to find 21 different encampments. And in those 21 different encampments, we move from Sinai to Kadesh, or Kadesh Barnea. And then from 37 to 49, there's nine more encampments, and that's from Kadesh and eventually to the plains of Moab. And it doesn't even recount a whole lot during that time because that's the wanderings, that's the going through the wilderness, and there's only nine or so encampments that are highlighted. It doesn't mean that there are more. Uh, it, it could mean that there are more. We just don't know. But Moses chooses not to, at this point, 
put that in. Some scholars have said, well, there's from, if you take away Egypt and you take away Moab where they're at, there's 40 different encampments in there, one for each year. So Moses highlights that. Others have said, well, there's 42 different encampments in here. And it's based on seven complete sixes, six complete sevens. And the seventh seven is going to be, you can read a lot of stuff and we really don't know. We just know that Moses lays out this number of encampments For what reason? I don't think we should speculate in trying to get into too much of the numerology and trying to figure out all the numbers, unless it's really clear in Scripture. And in this case, it's not. There's these these different encampments that are laid out here for us to be able to see. And we find ourselves by the end of chapter, or verse 49, in the plains of Moab, which is where they're currently at when Moses is talking to them, and where they're going to be at for the entire book of Deuteronomy when Moses shares the book of Deuteronomy with them. So from the outset, when you start looking at it, it really seems to be a very barren site of profitability. You're going to look at this chapter and go, can I skip it? Can we just fast forward? Can we plow through this one, Pastor Art, and just be done? And let's like, we're, we're getting to the end of the book of Numbers. We can, we can be done with it. Can, can we just skip this one? It seems unprofitable. Well, that argument isn't even new. It's been around for a while. In fact, in the third century, Origen, who was one of the founded church fathers, uh, he was in Alexandria, which was a leading theological area for churches during that time. He was presented with some of the same criticisms about Numbers 33. They said, if you really believe in the inspiration of Scripture, how can you believe that a chapter such as this one has any value whatsoever? Isn't that an argument against the inspiration and the profitability of Scripture? To that, Origen replied this. He said, we cannot say the Holy Spirit's writings, that there is anything useless or unnecessary in them. When we do not understand them, we need to seek their meaning from the one who has inspired them. If we hold to the inspiration of Scripture, then Numbers 33 has some profitability for us. And it's been a really fun study, and there's a lot in here to talk about our great God that is highlighted about him. So let's, let's move forward a little bit in there. There's benefit for Israel and for us in these chapters. Those who lived through the adventures and saw them take place, these memories are evoked from just the simple reading of names. Just like if I say 9-11, I say JFK's assassination, I say Challenger, all those things evoke memories to many of you listening. The same thing is true. If, they, if, if God said or Moses said to the children of Israel, Kadesh, or if he says to them, Mara, or if he says to them, Kibroth Hata'avah, to them, those names have significant moments and meanings that they remember. Each stopping place is a witness to the leadership of Moses and a testimony to the mighty grace of God. When they would see that, they would see Moses has led them faithfully. They would see that God is consistently and faithfully provided for them by his mighty gracious hand of providence. This chapter, really, chapter 33, is an Ebenezer to Israel. Now, we, we often, when we sing, Come Thou Fount, we'll sing, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. And sometimes we don't know. It's from 1 Samuel 7 that it comes out again. It's that sign of victory. It is that, that stone of remembrance that is placed. This chapter is really a sign of victory and remembrance, which Israel will be able to go back to in the future and say, look, God cared for his people. God provided for his people. God protected his people. And it becomes this this moment that they can go back to and remember in a short synopsis that God is faithful, that God cares, that God protects. And this chapter just fleshes some of that out. Now, I know some of you are waiting for like the big, you know, I called it the good, the bad, the blase. But that's because that's what these days are like. There's no ugly day here. There's just the, the good days, the bad days, and the, and the blase days. And as you study Numbers 33, you're going to see that. There's good camps, there's good places, there's bad places, and there's just what seem to be blase places. They're just the every, everyday and ordinary. So let's talk about those. Let's talk about the good. There are those locations that Moses, for a few moments, he dwells on in the passage. It might only be from three or four extra words, but it breaks the normal repetition of the, they departed to here, and then they encamped here, and then they departed. And in some of these places, they break that normal repetition, and Moses is just giving a little bit more highlight, and he does that with these good places. He starts with Egypt. Look in verses three to five, where he talks about, and obviously that's where the bondage was, and that's where the, the, the redeeming of Israel began back in Egypt. But he says, they departed from Ramesses, 
in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the morrow, the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out of, with a high hand in the sight of all of Israel, with, with, a, with a great power, with a great might over top of them. They went out and Israel, Egypt was made low. For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon their gods also the Lord executed judgments, and the children of Israel removed from Ramesses, and then they pitched her and they encamped in Succoth. So they, they move across. When we look at Egypt here, we see, we know from Exodus 12, that's the, that's the historical account that occurs there. It begins with Passover, the redemption of the land, the covering of the, the blood over the doorpost. But we see that God's power is invincible through the Exodus and through Egypt. That there is no God who's able to stand against him. That there is no mighty army here on earth that is able to conquer him. God is invincible. God's judgment on sin is fearful. They're reminded, think about it. As they're walking out of Israel, what is Egypt doing? They're burying their firstborn. Why? Because of their high-handedness and Pharaoh's high-handedness against God, they're walking out, Israel's walking out with a high hand, and Egypt is sitting there humbled, being judged for their sinfulness. It's fearful, and it's a reminder of the fearfulness of, of being judged in sin by God. God is the only one and true God. Did you notice at the end of verse, at the end of verse four, it says that, the, that um, the Lord executed judgment upon their gods. Every one of those plagues going to one of the gods, though they're not real gods, but the, the people, the, the images, the items that uh, Egypt worshiped, God executed judgment, the Nile, Pharaoh, the fro- they were all tied to different Egyptian gods. And yet God is shown to be the one, the only true God. And so Moses highlights that moment in Egypt. He reminds Israel that God is powerful and that God is holy. There is no God like him. He is the one and only. He is unique. He is God. And so they're reminded in just a quick synopsis that God is powerful that God is holy. He brings up another good name in the passage. Verse, verse number eight. After they've removed out and they make their way to Paharoth, and when they make the, verse number eight, they go before Paharoth and pass through the midst of the sea in the wilderness there. Now, right in verse number seven, if you notice in verse seven, there's another name which is given there. Uh, it's Baal Zephon. Now, when you look at, you look at the uh, book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, verse 2 and 9, you're going to see Baal, Zaphon, and uh, Paharoth. See, and, and even like just reading through, are you like me? You're like, oh, trying to say these names, is, it's confusing. It's tricky sometimes. But that is where the children of Israel, after they left Egypt, they found themselves encamped with uh, Egypt's army pressing toward them. And the sea, the Red Sea at their back, And so as this is happening, they're there. And what happens? God sends his presence. He sends that cloud to protect them, the pillar of fire to protect them while they cross the Red Sea. God delivers them out. He moves them away from the army that is coming against them. And then he allows Pharaoh's army to go in and destroys the greatest world power army of the day. So God is, God is working. It was a good day. Those names are seared upon the minds of the children of Israel. So when they hear them, and they hear that little synopsis about, oh, that was where we crossed the Red Sea, they, they knew that. They knew about Rephidim that is, that is talked about down in verse 14, where it says that they, they removed from uh, Alush and encamped at Rephidim. Notice there's just a little statement here. Where was no water for the people to drink? They, but they also knew that in Exodus 17, that that was also another place in Rephidim where the Amalekites attacked Israel. And what happens? As Moses keeps his arms up, Israel is winning the battle. They're prevailing. But as his arms drop, they're not. So what happens? Aaron and Hur are aiding in the supporting of Moses' arms and hands to, to continually allow Israel to prevail. There's another place that you can look at, verse 40, where it talks about the Mount Hor. Uh, and even just even a little bit before, you can see in verse 37, they pitched at Mount Hor. This is where Aaron the priest went up into Mount Hor at the commandment of the Lord and died there. This is another place. And then you have it down at Arad. What happens is, verse 40, the king Arad, Arad is not a, a place, Arad's a, a proper name. It's the king uh, for one of the Canaanite people. 
and this is found in Numbers 21. We talked about this already. They attacked, while Israel's going through a, a hard time because Mo, Aaron has died, now on the heels of his death, Arad is going to attack, and what happens? God gives them the power, the strength to be able to conquer and defeat them. God protected them, whether it's with the Amalekites at Rephaim, if it's uh, in Rephidim here at Mount Hor with Aram, or back at Baal Zephon and Paharoth where Egyptian army is coming. What did, they, what did the Israelites remember about these places? These are places that God protected us. That God was the one. He was the warrior. He was the one who has the army of angels who was there to protect us. He is our God. He is our protector. They're reminded of that in this passage. What's another good, some other good places that are mentioned in, the, in this chapter? You have Mara, Elim, and Rephidim. Again, right up in the verse 8, 9, 10 following, right in, that, right in that area. Remember the most consistent complaint we've had. As we wander through the wilderness, where's the water? We need water. The water's not good. The water's bitter. The water's struggling. And all of these places right here, Mara, Elim, and Rephidim, were all places where God provided water for his people. In Marah, Mara, you have where the water was made bitter. The bitter water was made sweet. You have that in Exodus uh, chapter 15. You have in verse number 9, look in verse number 9, it talks about, and they removed from Marah, and they came to Elim. And Elim were 12 fountains of water and three score and 10 palm trees. And they pitched there. Just a little addition there, but a reminder of even after the bitterness of Mara and the water that was made sweet, God had even something more lush for them, something more bountiful, brings them to an oasis. And uh, in Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17 is that impossible moment where God provides impossible water, where the first time when Moses and Aaron did it correctly and the rock brings forth water. We have that, that there. So in Israel's mind, when they hear these names, that's part of their history. They know what happened there. And Moses takes a little bit of extra time to say, remember the goodness of God? Remember that God provides? That God cares our, our greatest needs that we had? He gave them to us. The water that we needed in the middle of this arid desert, he provided. When armies came against us, he protected. When we were in bondage, our powerful and holy God helped us out. And so these, these good places that Moses just highlights uh, with a few extra words, they, they're there in the minds of Israel. They're able to reflect back and remember their great God, that their holy God, that the holy God of Israel powerfully provided and protected his people in the past. And as new generations read Numbers 33, they're going to be able to remember that God protected them in the past and he will do it for us again as we faithfully follow him. But then there's the bad situations. You can look through this passage and you're going to see a number of them come up. We can go back right away to Mara. The good, they had water, but the bad was they complained about the water because it was bitter. And we want, we want, uh, we want good water to drink, Moses. Verse 16, and it's just, it just says, they removed from the desert and pitched the Kibroth Hata'avah. Do you remember back in Numbers 11, they were complaining because they wanted meat. They were tired of just the vegetables and the, or the, the manna. They wanted meat. And God says, okay, I'll give, you, I'll, give you, I'll give you meat. And then there was the whole issue of them being greedy and taking more than they needed and not obeying the commands of God. And the place was then named Kibroth Hata Avah after these people got sick and they were dying and, and things were happening there. Verse 36, you have another famous name that we know of, that we've studied in, this path, in the book. They removed from Ezi and Geber and pitched in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. We know Kadesh, sometimes called Kadesh Barnea. Uh, in Numbers 13 and 14, we know that's the big one. The unbelief, the unfaithfulness to God, the rebellion against God. We're not going to go into the promised land. We don't want to go where you want to We want to go back to Egypt. That was in the people's minds. Mount Hor. It is a moment, a sad moment in Israel's history up to this point. They're number two. Aaron is going to go up the mountain and he is going to uh, die. 
It is the, the, the end of Aaron's ministry and the end of Aaron's life. And it reflects back to Numbers 20 when he and Moses did not obey the commands of God and they struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock and they disobeyed him. Because of that, they were not going to be able to enter into the promised land. Interestingly enough, look in, the, look in this passage for a moment. It says, it says down there, verse 38, that Aaron went into Mount Hor, went up into Mount Hor, at the commandment of the Lord, and he died. It's couched in, not the rebellion, but it's talking about Aaron's act of obedience to God. To say, okay, Aaron, it's time. Let's go. And it doesn't say that he balked, that he squawked, that he pushed back, but that he followed at the command, to, even to death. He followed after what God had said. And it's just that, that beautiful picture of obedience, even to the point of death, that Aaron, Aaron follows the Lord. There, verse 49, where they find themselves encamped at the moment. They're in Moab. It says they pitch from Beth Shishesh and unto Abel Shatim in the plains of Moab. And they find themselves there. But what happened in the plains of Moab? We remember back in Numbers 25, where they were seduced by the Midianites and the, the, the other few tribes that are around there in their, their conglomeration, the Moabites. And they were seduced by them and a number of the Israelite men fell into adultery and they were punished by God because of their unfaithfulness to God because then they were finding themselves in uh, idolatry and false worship. And so God punishes. All these names are just mentioned and they're there. But you notice how they're mentioned? Do you notice how this has been recorded? I think this is really interesting. A number of commentators bring this out, that the names are given, but not the atrocity. The, the sin is not recorded there. It's, it's, it's just given, the name is just given. If you didn't know their history and all you did was read Numbers 33, you would not know that there was ever an issue in the wilderness. You would, you would have no clue it's not, a, it's not a negative reflection. It's not a rewriting of history. But it's, it's whole, it shows that God's passing over in silence concerning Israel's unfaithfulness. Now, that is not saying that God does not deal with sin. We know that God deals just the names alone to Israel. They remember that God has already dealt with sin. God has judged the unbelief. We've been wandering for 40 years because he judges the unbelief. Some of our relatives are no longer with us because he judges sin. Some of our fr friends are not, are not with us because he has dealt with the rebellion of their sin and their unfaithfulness. This is not saying that God does not deal with sin. We know clearly that our holy and just God deals with sin. But even though he deals with sin, he does forgive he doesn't continually bring it up. It is a deliberate decision here by Moses and by God to not bring up all the past atrocities. There's a moving forward, and the people need to be able to move forward from their forward ways. They, yes, they know it happened, but they're not, they're not completely confined and defined just by that sin. They're able to, because of the forgiveness of God and because God has judged it and God has dealt with it and God has forgiven it and God has chosen to remove it as far as the east is from the west, we are able to then move forward. And so Israel has that ability. Same for us. When God deals with our sin, when we confess our sin and he forgives us of our sin, we're able to move forward and we don't have to just dwell in the past. We need to work on that. We need to work on duplicating God's character. Remember Ephesians chapter four, Paul tells us that we are to forgive one another even as Christ has forgiven us. This is an attitude, this is a characteristic of God that he doesn't just, oh, I'm just, I have to establish the mode of operation for how they always were. He doesn't do that. He looks and says, yes, this has happened. It's been dealt with, let's move, let's move forward. And I think for us, I don't know about you, but at times I'm afraid to look back to my past, to reflect for fear of being overwhelmed by just the reality of my sin. And I get bogged down. But I need to remember that my gracious and righteous and holy God, he forgives because the holy God of Israel faithfully forgives his followers. And I am so thankful that he does. And hopefully you've been able to experience the forgiveness of God, one, through salvation, but then also through the confession of your sin and the repentance so that you, as you're made right and you are cleansed, 
you can be clean again and have that fellowship restored with God. And it's a wonderful thing to know that our God faithfully forgives his followers. He doesn't just hold it against. I, I love it. Now, there, are, there have been good things here. There have been bad days here for Israel. But if you look at a good chunk of numbers, it's a lot like our life, everyday life. You wake up in the morning, you pour the coffee. You get the kids ready for school. You, you pack the lunches. You get them out the door. You get in the car. You get stuck in traffic. It's frustrating. You finally get to work. You push the papers. You get the things done. You come back home, maybe pick the kids up or tra- take them to you know, a soccer practice or a volleyball practice or baseball or maybe to music lessons or art class or something like that. You pick them up after that. Maybe you have to move them to another place. Then you come back home. You make dinner. After dinner is made, you sit down, maybe watch TV for a little bit. Somewhere in the midst of that, you get the kids ready for bed. You put them in bed. You finally sit down, fall asleep, only to do what? Wake up the next day and do it all again. Maybe a few variations, but it's all about the same. Life is more than just a collection of highs and lows. There's there's a lot that happens in between. There's a lot that's just everyday life normal. There's a, there's a phrase that, you know, a lot of the younger adults use now called hashtag adulting. It just has this idea of it's just doing the normal everything, uneventful. We got to get up and go to work. We got to do, pay the bills. We got to, and that's that idea. Or the teens will use a phrase, and even the young adults will use a phrase called meh. It just means it's, it's, not, it's not inspiring. It's not exciting. It's just meh. It's, there's a lot of meh. In Numbers 33. Not that the, it's, it's boring or blasé, but it is a little bit. It's just everyday life. We don't, know, we don't know a lot about these places. In fact, there's 17 different places here that we don't know where they're at. We know nothing about them other than they were recorded in Scripture as a place that Israel encamped. Now, that should not concern us a lot. Critics will argue against that, and they'll say that this discredits the Bible. But remember, Israel is traveling through an uninhabitable place without buildings that are intended to last time. They're packing it all up and moving to another place. Nothing's going to remain, and we shouldn't expect that thousands of years later that the tent and the jar that they had here in you know, some place that, that is just named in Numbers 33 should still be around. That's just, it's normal attrition. It's normal wearing away of life. Though there are not major events that occur at these places, it does not mean that God did not provide, that God did not protect during the mundane. And even in those places, they might not hold special significance for Israel as a nation or for us looking back, but for those Jews who were living at, pick, pick a name, Pick verse 21, Libna and Rissa and Kelethethethava, verse 23, and Shafer. And all, we may not know anything about it, but for the Jews living in those and camping at those places during that time, they were daily experiencing the provision, the protection, the providence, the love, the mercy, the grace of God. Even in the midst of the blase, the meh, the mundane, the normal everyday life. They were still experiencing God's goodness and grace. To build our faith for the trials of the journey, the highs and the lows, we must remember that each step of each day, we have been brought safely through by God. And every day that he brings us through, it might just be the mundane day, he's brought us one step closer to home. He's brought us one step closer to heaven, to the real promised land, the ultimate promised land that is, is going to be for those of us who are believers. And we look forward to that. And God has faithfully sustained and given us breath and life to be able to rejoice and to glorify him and to thank him for all that he has done and provided for us. The holy God of Israel, even with the blase, his faithfulness is seen in their daily ordinary provisions of life. Not just the highs, not just the lows, but everything in between. And what does God do? That, that brings us to verse 50. When we, by the time we get to verse 50 in this chapter, God has the children of Israel on the plains of Moab. They've traveled this whole journey, 
and he's going to continue to help them. He's going to continue to provide for them as they enter into the promised land. In verses 50 through 56, he's going to talk to them about what you're supposed to do in the promised land. In fact, it's going to spill all the way into chapter 34. God provides the prerequisites for entry into the promised land and the prerequisites to faithfully live in the land. He said, okay, we've traveled all this way. We're here. We're on the doorstep. We can look across the Jordan River and see the promised land. We're ready to go in. But here's what you have to do. When you go in, this is how what God expects of you. And if you want to remain there and enjoy the blessings of God, this is what you must do. And he, he lays it all out to help Israel. So God is going to provide. We're going we're gonna to jump to 30. We're going to come back to the very end of chapter 33 for a minute. And 34, God is going to provide the borders of the promised land. In fact, if you look, verse 3, it's going to talk about the south quarter. It's going to begin in the south. And verses 3 to 5, he's going to move across the south. He's going to give some of these names. Again, some of these names, we don't know all of them, but we, we know enough of the names to get a good general idea of what the promised land looked like in, in the Old Testament time. And then in verse 6, he's going to move up the, the west, western border. Look what he calls it. He says, you shall even have the great sea for the border. What sea? That's the Mediterranean Sea. So he says, all the west coast is going to be the Mediterranean Sea. And then he says that we're going to move across your north border, verse 7. This shall be your north border from the great sea, and it shall point out to you for uh, all the way to Mount Hor. And Mount Hor, you shall be able to point out. And he goes on, and he's going to talk about that. Then you get to verse 10, and he says, this shall be your eastern border. In verses 10 through 12, he's going to lay out the eastern border. And he lays this all out in this clockwise uh, rotation where he's going to go from the south, and he's going to go up and around and over, so that as you look, you can get a general idea of why the border is there. Now, why, why do they have to do that? I think there's a couple reasons. One, the children of Israel are going to see the generosity of God, how much land he's going to give them. He's, they're going to be able to understand for these two and a half tribes that were just in chapter 32. This is how far, this is what you have to help them conquer. You can't just go in and do one battle and say, well, we helped you conquer the land and walk out. No, this is the expanse of land that they're going to have and that you need to make sure you help them conquer because that's the, the oath that you made. So God gives them and helps them to understand the length and the breadth of his graciousness and generosity to them in this passage. Now notice in verses uh, 13, 14, 15, Moses is going to command the children of Israel saying, this is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord commanded to give all to all the tribes, the nine tribes, you notice that, verse 13, and the half tribe, because there's two and a half other tribes, Reuben, Gad, verse 14, and, uh, and the half tribe of Manasseh, They've received their inheritance. And verse 15 almost has a little bit of a, a jab. He talks about that there's not, they're not included. The Transjordan side is not included as part of the promised land proper. God has established where their inheritance is going to be. Now Moses is going to look and say, these two and a half tribes, they've got their inheritance. Verse six, 15, the two and a half tribes have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan near Jericho eastward toward the sun rising and just leaves it at that and says they're not involved in that, which again is important so that when all things are fleshed out in years to come, everybody knows those, those tribes, they have their land on that side, we have our land on this side. So God is going to keep going through and God provides direction to even how to distribute this land. Here's the distance of it. Here's the direction in which the land is going to be. But here's how to distribute it. In chapter 33, verse 54, it talks about that there's going to be a lot <clears throat> that is going to be cast and there, that it's going to be done providentially. The lot was considered and seen as God having his hand in it. There was confidence that God was involved in this. It wasn't, the, oh, the luck of the draw. This was seen by Israel as a way that God providentially chose who was going to have which portions of land. It was considered to be just, and it was considered to be fair by the people. It not only was going to be providentially controlled, but it was going to be proportionally divided. Notice back in uh, chapter 33, verse 54, it says that you shall give more inheritance 
to the, to the greater families, and fewer, uh, you shall get less inheritance. So it, the, the, the larger tribes in the census were going to get more land, and the, the smaller tribes were going to receive less land. God provides the direction in how to distribute the land. The division is going to be overseen by people. It's going to be overseen initially by uh, Eliezer and Joshua for the main division, and then in chapter 34, verses 16 to 29, God is going to give these, these names of all these individuals that are going to be laid out here. He's going to start talking about uh, not only Eliezer and Joshua in chapter 17, but then he's going to have from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, from Simeon, Shemuel, Eladad, and he goes on and on and talks about them. But look in verse 29. Verse 29 gives you a little clue. This is not just special people or people who just think they they're, have great prominence or the people elected. These were people whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance unto the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. So the subdivision of the tribes was going to fall to these, these individuals that God himself has commanded. Notice the delegation. Notice the authority structure. Notice how it is just passed down in a beautiful way. God tells Moses, Moses tells Joshua, Eliezer, and these, and then it's going to go down to the people. There is, a, there is an assemblance of order and delegation, and God provides that for his people. Why? Inheritances can get a little ugly sometimes. We see that even in present day. Parents die. Everybody fights over who gets what. Now you're not just talking about who gets some of the trinkets or the car or something special. You're talking about your livelihood, your land inheritance. Who's going to, why, I want the one by the stream. I want that one over by them. I want that with the grass. I want, it get really ugly very quickly. So God in his grace and his wisdom to his people provides a way to have the land divided orderly, fairly, justly, so that no one can look and say, well, I want, no, God has, in his unique sovereignty, divided the land for the people. God provided these requirements for them as well. He said, this is how you're going to have the land. This is how you're going to divide the land. But if you want to stay in the land, let's go back to 33. There is a, there is a key passage of scripture that has great impact on the rest of the Old Testament. God looks at them and says, you are to, when you go into the land, verse 52 of chapter 33, when you go into the land of Canaan, you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their, their pictures or their, their, uh, their images and destroy all their molten images, their idols, and pluck down their high places and you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein for I have given you the land, the land that's his. He is the ruler of all lands. He says, I've given you this land to possess it. So God tells him, drive out the people out of the land. They may not stay with you. Get them out. He says, you are going to destroy all their carved images, all their metal images, all their places of worship. That's the high places. You're to get rid of them. You are to dispossess these inhabitants. Notice, they're not to kill everybody. There are moments where they're told to kill. Like in Jericho, it's placed under a ban, and they're all to, to be destroyed. But they're to kick them out of the land. They're to dispossess them. They're to drive them out, to establish a border given to them by God. He's already done that in chapter 34. And they're not to be let back in, unless, of course, they're willing to follow after Jehovah and Judaism, like Rahab did. So God looks and says, you are to get rid of them. They are to be gone. Why? God wants them to wipe out every potential rival to his rule. His rule in their hearts, in the purity of their life, in the purity of their worship, in their service to him. God says the Canaanites Back in Genesis, I've given them four, I'm going to give them 400 years to change. They don't do it in this whole time. They're still, the Amalekites are still, is, is the group they're talking about, still rebelling against God. God says, I want you to wipe them out, all of the, the remnants of their false worship. I want you to dispossess them out of the land, get them gone, because they will influence your heart. 
They will draw you away from true worship. They will influence you toward idolatry. At the outset, God calls upon them to assault the very things that he, will, that he knows will severely test them. He looks and says, I know that they will draw you away. I know that they will convince you to worship false gods. Many of you are listening. You know the history of Israel. You know that these statements are true. You know that that's going to be a battle. The Israelites had to make a decision. They had to decide whether they would faithfully follow God and what he says or not. Verse 55, 56. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land... So now all of a sudden, you have an option here, Israel. Are you going to drive them out or are you not going to drive them out? Are you going to follow God's command to the uttermost or are you not going to? Are you going to do it half-heartedly or are you going to do it wholeheartedly? What are you going to do? Then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell Moses looks at them under the inspiration of God and says, you need to remember, this is God's direction. He's the one who has told me to tell you this, that you are to dispossess, you drive out and destroy. There is a danger to disobedience. If you do not obey God to the fullest, he says, if you don't drive them out, if you don't destroy them, if you don't dispossess them, then those people are going to be a pain to you. They're going to be poking that, that annoyance in your eye. They're going to be the thorn that gets in you and festers and is infected in your body. They're going to be the ones who will cause you great difficulty and vex you. And we know through the book of Judges, we know through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, into the Chronicles, that these nations vex Israel, that they fester, that they bring infection into the worship of Israel. And we see this played out, allowing the people of the land to remain. The ones who were the source of idolatry would lead to the infection of people. It goes back to that New Testament concept even of friendship with the world is enmity with God. Of fellowship with light and darkness causes struggles. It's going to lead us away. It is foolish to allow the Canaanites to remain. That's what Moses is telling them. This is foolishness. You need to drive them out, dispossess them. A peaceful coexistence with idolatry is impossible. What a great lesson for me. What a great lesson for you. There are idols of our heart. There are things that we place, take in the place of God, and we say we can have both. We can live the way we want and live the way that God wants us to. And we can sort of mix and blend them. The pluralism of our day is the idolatry of yesterday. It is bringing it all together and saying we can just sort of believe however we want. No, we must be obedient to God and his word. What is, what is the consequence? Notice what it says, the very last verse of verse 33, chapter 33. Moreover, if you don't do these things, it shall come to pass that I shall do to you as I thought to do unto them. What does he say? To them, they were to be dispossessed out of the land. God looks and says, Israel, if you don't dispossess them out of the land, they will influence you. They will cause you to go astray. And I'm going to have to judge you and punish you, and I will treat you the way that you should have treated them and the way that I wanted them treated. It's sad to think. Israel never fully realizes the boundaries that God lays out in chapter 34. They get close with Solomon, but they never get the Philistines out of the the strip along the the west. They never fully expand to the borders that, that we understand in any of their times. They've never fully experienced that. Why did they not experience God's full blessing? Because they didn't drive the people out. They did not get rid of them. They did not follow God to his utmost. Israel never gets them gone, and they become those continual thorns in their side which eventually affect them, lead to idolatry. And eventually, because of that, God treats Israel like the Canaanites. We know that in 722, the northern 10 tribes after the division of Israel are taken away by Assyria. We know that in 586, Judah, the southern tribes, they're taken away by Babylon. 
They are dispossessed out of the land. Why? Because they did not follow what God told them back here in Numbers before they entered into the land. Right before they were going in, God says, do this, and this land is yours. You will experience the bounty, the blessings, the full glory that I want to give to you. But they did not follow through. They were not faithful to God. God was faithful to them. And God faithfully provided all that they need and all that we need to live in the good, the bad, the blasé. It was there. Israel did not follow through on all of that. But what about us? God's faithful. We can look at Numbers 33 and 34 and say, you know what? God is faithful, God was faithful, and God continues to be faithful. But I need to be faithful to him. Not just when the days are good. Okay, I'm going to be faithful after a teen camp because that's a high, or after a revival meeting, or after, uh, you know, the, the reenactment or neighborhood night, or whatever, whatever those things that we look forward to, those high points in our calendar. Or I'm going to be faithful to God, you know, after I repent after the bad. But he also says in the days that are just blah, meh, the normal days. They're not bad days, they're just normal. We need to be faithful to God. Because God is faithful to us. That's a great truth from this passage. There was a story I heard that talked about a lady. She said, I find myself often living between, somewhere between those days when it's helped me, Jesus, and those days that it's thank you, God. She said, most of my days are not the highs and the lows. Most of my days are pretty normal. They're just average. She said, I have to learn to act faithfully in those days in the normal days of my life. When I look at Numbers 33 and 34, and I see the highs, the lows, the dangers of disobedience, all the things that are happening around, I look and I say, you know, what can I take away? My God is faithful. I need to be faithful to him. But I need to do it by acting faithfully and following him, the faithful one, in all the days of my life. Not just when things are going good or not just when things are going bad and I look up because I need help. But in the everyday. Not just on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Not just when I'm around church people, but when I'm at school. When I'm at work and all the guys are cussing. Well, not at my work. But when you're at work and all the guys are cussing and you just decide to join in. Or when the... The, the gossip starts, and you want to chime in. Well, I'm not a church, so it's not that big of a deal. No. It's being faithful to our faithful God in every day. The highs, the lows, the good, the bad, and the blase. Let's be faithful to our faithful God. Wonderful truths from Numbers 33 and 34 that we can look and say, you know what? If I'm faithful to God, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I look forward to dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Because he's faithful to us, and those are the faithful promises he gives to his faithful followers. So let's work this week at faithfully following our faithful God. Father, I pray that you would help me and help those listening to be willing to, as we look through this passage, that that truthfully, Lord, it, it seems a little just, it's on the outset, boring, but Lord, there's so much in there. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who protects and provides and is providentially caring. And Lord, that you are faithful and you, you give us so many things every day, Lord. Help us to count our blessings and to look at the many wonderful things you faithfully give to us each and every day. For it's in your wonderful and blessed and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.